So as I mentioned, I would afford you the opportunity to raise a question if you have one prepared uh, for our Sunday school this morning. I'll give you a minute to think. I know we're still working through Mike's question. We're still engaged in the study on the subject of the covenants. Um, but I thought because folks were away uh, today that it might be good uh, maybe today and next week to um, move in a different direction. But uh, we'll give you the opportunity to move us yet in a different other direction still. So give you a minute. If I don't see a response... will then forge ahead with what I have kind of sort of planned <laughs> this morning. I know I planned the next, well, not just today and next week, but through the month of July and August to preach through the Beatitudes of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. And um, I'm going to give you an introductory study this morning on the subject of um, the Beatitudes and um, endeavor to give a sense of what they're about in the Sermon on the Mount, what they're about in the the totality of the the biblical witness and just what they are in terms of the way in which it's structured and to look at an outline of the the Beatitudes. Um, But I thought it would be also good to uh, state some more things about the Beatitudes, state some more things about... um, the Sermon on the Mount, and maybe give a little bit of a sense of what this sermon is all about in a fuller way than I intend to do it in the morning hour. So turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And you see that our Lord, at the beginning of his public ministry, and again the public ministry begins in verse 12, actually of course in the light of John's gospel, Jesus had a prior ministry in Judea, he had a prior ministry among disciples that he calls on the sea of, from the Sea of Galilee. We read about that in John chapter 1. Uh, so they weren't complete strangers to him. He in fact had called them previously, but now he has come up to Galilee uh, in verse 12. This is when John, this is chapter 4 in verse 12. Uh, now when he heard, as Jesus heard, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And having uh, living, and leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum, by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that the prophecy of uh, Isaiah nine would be fulfilled uh, concerning the light that would come from Galilee. Um, so this begins what is the heart of Matthew's gospel, also really the heart of uh, Mark's gospel as well. Luke uh, has a good bit about this part of Jesus' ministry, although he has an extended statement of what Jesus did on the on the way to Jerusalem, like from chapter nine to the really coming into Jerusalem. There's extended instruction that Jesus gives that is uh, much of it is unique to Luke, though some of it you find in the other Gospels, and he structures it a little bit differently. But he makes much of the Galilean ministry as well as Matthew and Mark. And so this is what we call the great Galilean ministry of our Lord, that the Synoptic Gospels, the first three Gospels, highlight. Now John's Gospel, as you know, is structured differently. Jesus is going back and forth from Judea up to Galilee, and it's structured around the feasts, when Jesus would uh, go down to um, be at the Passover in the temple, 
um, when he in chapter 7 would be at the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7 when he would be even at the Feast of Dedication what we call Hanukkah uh, in chapter 10 and uh, so it really is structured around the fact that the Jews would make their pilgrimage to the temple at least three times a year by the commandment of God although other things they did and celebration of uh, things of the historic importance in the nation like the Feast of Dedication and Jesus is there and he's taking uh, advantage of the gatherings of the crowd to make himself known and that's how John fun- uh, structures his gospel around the um, uh, festivals and around the uh, movement from Jesus from uh, Judea up to Galilee in chapter 6 well, through Samaria in chapter 4 and going back and forth um, but here in the great Galilean ministry that Jesus begins uh, Matthew has um, the fact that uh, Jesus had a message to preach verse 17 from that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so the great notes that Jesus strikes in his public proclamation is a call to repentance and is called to repentance in the light of the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. Now, kingdom of heaven is probably a mistranslation because basileia, the Greek word that's translated kingdom, more rightly refers, at least in, the, in, in this sense, not to a realm like you have the kingdom of Great Britain or the kingdom of Denmark or the kingdom of whatever kingdom has a, a king a, 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 a either actually or figured, as a figurehead ruling over them. It's referring to a place. It's referring to a realm. It's referring to a place with borders and boundaries. Uh, but this kingdom that Jesus proclaims has no borders, has no boundaries. It's not a re- realm in that sense. It's a reign. And it really could be translated kingship the kingship or the reign of God the Lord reigns let the earth rejoice you have all those Lord reigns psalms in the book of the psalms and Jesus comes to be the God who reigns he comes as the incarnate deity he comes as the Davidic king to come to reign as king in Israel and he comes to the mountain and we'll have more to say about the significance of coming to the mountain in the morning worship and in verse five, chapter 5 and verse 1 seeing the crowds he went up to the mountain he sat down his disciples came to him he opened his mouth and taught them saying and I guess the thought would be well that's what Jesus said and we have it verbatim word for word although it's probably not that way uh, first of all when you read the sermons of the Bible they don't take very long to read um, you know what does this sermon take? Maybe 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes? Brief homily. Uh, and to think that nothing else was said is probably not right. Um, again, we're reading a, 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 a literary uh, piece, a gospel, that Matthew writes that has as its content things that were communicated or first heard orally wasn't something written, wasn't something they were writing down, wasn't like uh, something that was on tape and they then made a transcript, word for word for word, like we have transcripts that go into courtrooms of conversations that are made and it's word for word, it's verbatim but uh, the way in which um, the church perpetuated the, 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 the testimony of Jesus, the words of Jesus was orally, 
They spoke the word of God. They spoke about the things Jesus said and the things that Jesus did. And it didn't come to the place of being written down until you know, much later on. I mean, the Gospels were not the earliest literature in our Bibles. The letters of Paul were. And these Gospels were written um, decades, likely, after Jesus actually spoke these words. Now, there's a couple of things we need to remember. Is that they were written within the framework of the apostolic community, who had special promises given to them. We've seen that in John, where Jesus breathed on these men, said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And as the Father sent me, so sent I you. Of course, Jesus never wrote anything. But the words of Jesus that they put to writing, that they were communicating orally, um, they had to make a choice about what to say, what not to say. Remember, John concludes his letter saying, many other things Jesus said in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. These things are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing have life in his name. So, So John says, I had to sit down and make a choice because of all the books that could be written about the things that Jesus said and did were written, the whole world couldn't contain them. I know it's a little bit of hyperbole, but still, the reality is there's so much more to say, so much more to tell. If you would seek to give a transcript of Jesus' life and Jesus' words, the whole world couldn't contain all the things that could be written, he says. And uh, so he made a choice, and Matthew made a choice. And yes, there was a time Jesus began his ministry. There was a time that he spoke from mountains. And Matthew's putting this together in a way that's going to lend credence to Jesus, who he is, what, he's, what he said, what he did, that believing you'd have life in his name. He's, he's, he's a, a proclaimer of Jesus. And, he's, and, and so these gospel records are, are not so much bi- biographies in the modern sense, where you, you, know, you have to get it down fully and exhaustive treatment of what happened then and there. Uh, this is uh, shorthand. <laughs> this is theological shorthand it, it, designed to give to the reader a clarity of an idea of who Jesus is, what Jesus said, what Jesus requires. And they did it in a literary way that uh, endeavored to make the, 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 the best impression, uh, to put it out with a clarity and with a power and with a compelling uh, sense uh, that the reader would get the message about Jesus and the totality of the context in which Jesus' life was lived. Um, and so they make uh, editorial decisions, what to say and what not to say. Um, and that leads us you know, to some problems. How do you square what Matthew has here in what we call the Sermon on the Mount and Luke 6? Where Luke has a sermon that Jesus preached that has similar content at some points, different content at other points, but yet similar enough that people would say, well, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And there are people that, that say that. And we turn to Luke chapter 6 and verse 20. Now, Matthew says he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Luke says he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Does that sound familiar? That sounds kind of like Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, except it's different. It's not the same. 
Because Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It doesn't say poor in spirit. It just says, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of heaven is Matthew's version of the kingdom of God. And then it says, blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. There's, no, uh, there's hunger and thirst for righteousness that the fourth beatitude says. But here it's just a matter of being hungry. Um, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Um, blessed are the mourners, for they shall be comforted. So it, it's similar, but clearly not exactly the same. And uh, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward in heaven is great, for so their fathers did to the prophets. That sort of corresponds to, I guess, what we call the eighth beatitude, about blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But then Luke goes on and gives a number of woes. No, not, Matthew only gives blessings. He doesn't speak a word about woes. But Luke does. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you, and when all people speak well of you, for so did the fathers to the false prophets. And then it goes on to, again, say things that are very parallel to the Sermon on the Mount, like, uh, I say to you, love your enemies. But again, it's very selective. Uh, Matthew gives a fuller picture of you've heard that it was said, but I say to you than what we have here in Luke. But there's yet things that are contained here that are contained in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the thought is that this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, except it's not. <laughs> except it's not. And, and, and how do we know that? Well, first of all, I would say that Luke is very, Matthew is very clear that uh, Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down and his disciples came to him. That's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Because <laughs> Jesus went up on the mountain, sat down and taught from the mountain. And that has real significance in the context of Matthew's whole statement about Jesus uh, we'll, I'm going to say it in the morning worship, but I'll just give you the abbreviated version here. Uh, called out of Egypt, uh, went to the river, uh, went to be tempted in the wilderness, and came to the mountain. There's something of a parallel in our Lord's experience, recapitulating the experience of the nation of Israel. And on the mountain, God speaks his law. And it's on this mountain that Jesus gives his instruction, his law, his Torah, to his people. And in this Torah, there's no word of curses, only words of blessing. And it's on a mountain. Well, go back to Luke. It says in verse 17, And he came down with them. <laughs> Matthew has him going up. This is hard to reconcile, how this would be the same sermon. When Matthew has him going up to a mountain, and Luke has him coming down. He came down with them, stood on a level place, with a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people. Um, and uh, so it's hard to figure out how could it be the same when it's clear this is on a level place. That's why this is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. It's on a plain. I think King James Version says he came down and stood on a plain. He stood on a level place. Was it a mountain plateau? Likely, Luke is 
Luca's making this directional thing, not going up but coming down, standing in a level place, not on the mountain, likely as someone who knew what Matthew had said about the Sermon on the Mount. And he's trying to make it clear that though there's similarities in what Jesus said, hey, Jesus said the same thing in many places at many times. How often do I repeat myself? In public ministry, that's what you do. You say things that maybe you've said before, and you sit there saying, oh, he's going to tell that story again, or he's going to refer to that thing again. Um, Well, it's inevitable that we do that. And Jesus is a traveling preacher who went from place to place, spoke to the multitude, spoke to the crowd, spoke to the disciples in the presence of a great crowd. The crowd isn't always the same. You're going to repeat yourself and you're going to say the same things. But what Jesus says, as I said, it sounds similar, but it's not the same. There are clear differences. And then when you look on the context of Luke, compared to the context of Matthew, clearly it's a different situation. It's a different, it's a different um, situation in life. I use that expression in the psalm study, and I got it all wrong, the German. The sitz in Leben, it means a situation in life. Leben, L-E-B-E-N. Not, uh, no, there's a similar word for love. But it's the situation in life that many of the commentators think is vital to understand what the Proverbs are about. And you have to have the situation in life to really understand what the sermon is about. Well, what's the situation in life? What's the things that happen? Well, in the, chapter 6 begins... Were Jesus going through the grain fields, the plucking and eating of the grain, and the opposition of the Pharisees? The Pharisees said, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And uh, Jesus responds. And then you have another incident. Another Sabbath, he enters a synagogue, and there was a man there with the withered hand. And Jesus healed him, again, on the wrong day. It was on the Sabbath day. And then, um, in verse 11, it says, they were filled with fury. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Do you have anything comparable to that when the Sermon on the Mount is present in Matthew? Well, no. It's the first words that proceed from the mouth of Jesus about the kingdom. He's given kingdom instruction there, or kingship instruction. He's given the the word of the king, the law of the king, the Torah of the king. Um, Here, there's a response to persecution. There's a response to growing opposition. The Pharisees are filled with fury. Mark says they went and they began to discuss with Herodians how they might kill him. They're going to put Jesus to death. And you see from this point forward, Jesus is ever retreating. He's backing away from their efforts to persecute him. And this also comes in, there's a couple of chapters away from chapter 4, when in the synagogue of Nazareth, they sought to throw him over a cliff. And so persecution is growing against our Lord. And so what does Jesus do in the face of persecution? Well, he prays. Verse 12 says he prays. Went up to the mountain and he prayed. Continued it all night in prayer to God. Good thing to do when you're under persecution, when you're under threat, when people of the world are just bringing hostility and uh, danger to you, you go to, to, to pray. And on all night he continued in prayer to God. So he's on a mountain praying. He doesn't go up to the mountain to preach. He's on the mountain praying. He comes down from the mountain to teach. 
day, day came, he calls his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So what do you do when you're persecuted? Well, organize. You know, get some measure of organization in your group. Uh, how do we handle this? Who are the leaders to be? Who are the people that are to be um, giving aid and comfort to the leader and uh, giving aid and comfort to the people that are following? He organizes and then he teaches so everything that happens in chapter 6 seems to me to be in the light of the situation in life. The seats in Lieben going on here, the trouble that is being expressed. And then you can see why there are the differences. Because the theme of this sermon in chapter 6 is what do you do in the face of persecution? How do you react and respond to persecution? Well, that's why it's not poor in spirit, it's poor. What happens when people persecute the church? They take your possessions and goods. They cast you into prison. They leave you penniless. They say you can't work. You say you can't have be part of this society any longer. You become an outcast. And Jesus says there's worse things in the world than becoming an outcast. <laughs> blessed are the poor. Not You might think, oh, woe is me. Poor me. No, blessed are you when you are poor. What happens when you're poor? Well, you could get a hungry belly, not have sufficiency of food. Um, and so it's blessed who hunger now. It's not hunger and thirst for righteousness here. It's hunger. Because these are the kind of things you face in the light of opposition. You weep in the face of the troubles that come upon you. But you shall laugh hard to be hated and yet Jesus is blessed are you when you're hated when they exclude you when they revile you when they spurn your name as evil that territory is covered in the Sermon on the Mount but in a different way Uh, here the persecutions come and Jesus is teaching in the face of it in chapter 5 it's just more general it's not specific it's not specific this is a specific sermon Jesus speaks on an occasion of growing opposition and persecution to instruct his disciples how they are to respond to the persecution and so again a teacher is going to teach similarly in in, in different contexts but he's going to adapt his words to the particular context the particular audience the need of the hour and I think that's what you see in chapter 6 Matthew's presenting Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and he's giving him he's, he's giving us his first words spoken from a mountain as I'll say that in the morning hour I'm going to anticipate this sporting sermon I think quite a bit as we move along as God spoke from the mountain the law, Jesus also speaks from the mountain, the same voice that spoke from, from the mountain speaks again from the mountain giving the law of the king the law of the king his kingship, his reign, his rule. So that's the relationship, I think, that exists between the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. But then with respect to this Sermon on the Mount, going back to it, um, again, it begins with the blesseds, the Beatitudes, and we're going to say a whole lot about that in weeks to come. But I guess I should say that what the Beatitudes are concerned with is the character of the people of God. How character is formed in God's people. A character that leads to blessedness, happiness, 
But as I'm going to proclaim them to you in the subsequent weeks, I'm going to give you the Beatitudes as a grouping of seven blesseds. So we have seven Beatitudes. Now the reason I'm doing this is because Irene has provided a chalk holder with yellow chalk in the hopes that this will be seen better out there. And I guess the question is, is it seen better? Thank you, Irene. (laughs) Appreciate that. But you look at Matthew chapter 5, and you have every one of these statements beginning with the word blessed, in the Greek, makarios, and this word for happiness or well-being, good, uh, all kinds of ways that you can express what this word blessed means. Um, and you have seven of them from verse 3 to verse 9. But then there's an eighth one that's there in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to note that theirs is the kingdom of heaven in verse 10, clearly does correspond to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've taught you, when you see repetitions like that, that you can oftentimes think of it in terms of what? What do we call that? The bookends. Inclusios is the technical title for it, that operate as bookends. And so you might think that really verse 10 belongs to these seven Beatitudes. But I'm going to say that though it's often true that when you have repetitions, you do have bookends, it's not always the case. It's not always the case. Jesus can have reasons for thinking or speaking of a repetition of the kingdom of heaven that's other than creating a bookend so that you see eight Beatitudes rather than seven. I want to point out that those first seven Beatitudes are all in the third person. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are born, for they shall be comforted. That's all third person. When you come to verse 10, you have not only the blessed of verse 10, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is the repetition of those earlier blessings. But you have another blessed that comes after. Blessed are you, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this moves away from the third person to the second person. You see that? It's no longer blessed are they, but blessed are you. Blessed are you. That's the second person. You. You all. Second person plural. It's not just they, but it's you. Now Jesus is coming to personalize this, and he personalizes this not by opening up poverty of spirit, or mourning, or meekness, or hunger and thirsting for righteousness, but persecution. It's persecution. Persecution becomes the theme And I think you're moving away from the thought of character to the way in which character that's defined on the seven Beatitudes gets responded to in the world at large. How 
people react or how the character of the believer makes its impact within the wider culture. And so the persecuted are blessed, yes, but they're blessed not only because they have this great reward in heaven and the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, but it's in their involvement with the wider culture. What happens to a Christian who says, well, I'm a Christian, I'm going to live as a hermit. Does that person get persecuted? He just goes off on a desert island all alone, him and God, his Bible, to pray and meditate and you know, just grow spiritually. And well, No one's going to persecute that person who just simply retreats from society. The persecuted are persecuted for the simple reason they're involved in the society. They're encountered this society. They're deemed as a threat to the society. And so they are furious. You know, they, Jesus began to, to go through the cornfields in the presence of the Pharisees. And it was something that was just did in a private way. No one was around. Didn't influence anybody else. And he went into the synagogue and healed on the Sabbath day. He was doing that publicly within the culture, making his presence known. You don't get persecuted if you retreat from culture, and you don't get persecuted if you become like the culture. If you're like the culture, just like everybody else, and you just agree with everybody's sensibilities about everything, then you never make any kind of impact at all in the world at large. And we're called to make an impact. We're not just called to have private character. We're not just called to develop a personal, private religion within our own hearts, minds, and souls that has no impact on anyone anywhere at any time or in any place. And so I think the instruction of the Sermon on the Mount is moving from the character described in the seven Beatitudes to the way in which the Christian impacts the culture and the culture impacts the Christian. On the one hand, the culture persecutes the Christian when they begin to make inroads into the culture and are deemed to be a threat or a nuisance or a bother or just people just don't agree or they don't like you. And so they lash out at you in varying ways. And Jesus gives instruction about what to do when your Christian character begins to become a point where the people of the world frown. And you got this great reward in heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. So take heart in the midst of this. So persecuted they, the prophets that were before you. But also take heart in the fact that this involvement that you of necessity have in the world, have in the culture is an involvement that does in fact not just bring persecution on your head. It's an involvement with the culture that actually benefits and blesses the world at large. And that's where I think Jesus is going with this. He's going with this from the character we possess as God's people to the way in which our character impacts the culture we're called upon to serve and to minister to and to love and to show forth the praises of God and our Christianity not in a private place but in a public place and on one hand will bring persecution but on the other hand you're the salt of the earth you're the light of the world he 
again, the salt is a preservative. It, uh, it is uh, rubbed into meat in order that it would keep and not, not, not corrupt and, and spoil. Um, the world is corrupt. The world is spoiling. The world goes from bad to worse. The Christian has a role in the world of preservation of the world, of impacting the world for its good, of lessening the amount of evil that is in the world, of bringing the message of the gospel in a way that will bring others to become salty as well, to bring flavor as well as preservation to a world that is insipid and a world that is um, horrific and, uh, and going from bad to worse. And then you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. And again, you know, you put on a light in a closed room, and the guest, you, know, you ask the question if the tree falls and the <laughs> no one's around, does, does, it make a, does it make a sound? It has to be a recipient. We can put on a light in a room, and it's not going to lighten anybody unless it's, that light's making contact. God's people are to make contact. We're, we're not to be retreating. We're not to be allowing persecution to bring us to re- retreat. And, and the fact is that we make a difference. And we should expect to make a difference. We have a message that's the power of God for salvation, a message that leads to conversions. And so let your light shine before men. Don't put your lamp under a basket. Let it give light to all in the house. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. Not just your good words, but your good works. That they should see that Christianity works. <laughs> that Christianity changes people. That Christianity enlightens people. That Christianity is a good thing, a blessed thing. Christianity builds hospitals and builds orphanages in the old days. and Probably needs to as well today. Christianity takes the takes the children off of the exposure hills and takes them into their homes. The outcasts of the world are taken into the homes of Christians. It's not just that we complain about it. It's not just that we want to legislate against it. You do something about it. You're involved in the world to remediate the problems of the world. You're the light of the world. And people are going to see your good works and say, hey, that's a good work. Why doesn't anybody else do that? Why is it left to the Christians? You know, we don't have any idea what the world would be like if Christianity had never come into the world. It would be utterly barbaric. As many parts of the world that's not been impacted by the Christian gospel is barbaric. It's tribal, it's heartless, it's cruel. Um, Christianity is the light of the world. It's the salt of the earth. God's people are to understand that we and our character as believers, as those that embody the the qualities of the Beatitudes... Are, are, are equipped to go into the world and to do the world a world of good. And it's interesting how in the book of the Acts you see this working out. You know, you read the book of the Acts and, and you see that the church gets persecuted at every, at every point. At every point. And yet that day, 3,000 souls were added to them. And the number of the disciples grew to 5,000. Wait a minute, they're being cast into prison. Stephen's stoned to death. There's all kinds of consequences to pay for the profession of the gospel. And yet the gospel is at work in the world through Christians who are 
being light of the world, being salt of the earth. And as the word of the Lord progresses, the persecution tends to increase. And so one of the real key things is, how do you face the reality of the hostility of a fallen world and not let it throw you for a loop? Not let it cause your mouth to close? And again, I'm not saying, you know, move into the place of danger. You know, there's a whole thing in Florida with regard to that uh, safety officer who was uh, put on trial for not uh, going into the school building where there was a you know, a guy with an, a, uh, an, a, uh, an Air Force 15. Uh, uh, and the, the jury said, no, he wasn't, he wasn't guilty. Uh, he had extenuating circumstances. He couldn't hear where the direction was coming from. But, you know, you don't ask a, a, you don't ask a peace officer to go alone into a place where an AR-14 is going to cut you down in a second. You know, kind of good to wait for some reinforcements, perhaps. You know, there is a all kinds of things that people say about you know certain military things that happened that it gets criticized and you know the question was that they have protocols what is safe what is what when is it safe to do this when is it safe to do that and I'm not saying I know that much about the situation but I'm saying that there are protocols in the Christian life as well Jesus says to be wise as serpents as well as harmless as doves you're not to go into the way of Danger, if at all possible, make make a retreat. But if you can't, then you trust that God's going to give you the words. When you come before governors and kings, He's going to give you an ability to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad. But you don't take a martyr's complex into the world, and you don't say, "I'm going to try and get persecuted and just be as obnoxious as I possibly can, so that the world is just going to not only hate the message I bring, they're going to hate just the things that I say and I do." if we do that in an unwise and a foolish way. But yet don't retreat. Don't lose heart. Don't say that you, know, you think of the, you think of the uh, people of Israel not wanting to go up into the land because the inhabitants of the, Can- of, of the Canaanites were just too big. They're just too mighty. Whereas grasshoppers before them. That's just plain unbelief. You know, we, we can go into the place where, the, yeah, there's opposition. And you recognize that God will be with us. And God will give us the grace that we need if we act in wisdom and we act in love. And we act with the zeal and the desire for his glory. That God will enable us to say the things that need to be said. So that's why I think that the... There is not an eighth beatitude nor a ninth beatitude. There's seven beatitudes. The eighth and the ninth really belong to the next uh, set of ideas uh, that have to do with the way in which the character of the righteous um, relate to the world. Either being persecuted by the world or being God's agent to change the world. As salt and as light in the midst of the corruption and the darkness of the world. Any questions at this point? We got through 14, 15, 16 verses. Not opening up the Beatitudes in any degree of fullness. But, But then the next section is interesting, is that this is the first in Matthew's Gospel of a statement about, that Jesus speaks about why he's come. 
why he's come. You know, you see it later in chapter 9, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, he says, I've come not to be served, but not, not, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You have many of those statements where Jesus speaks about um, why he came. Here's the question of why he didn't come. He says, do not think that I have come, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a a yoda or an iota, um, not a dot, will pass from the law till all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the, the fact is that God's law, even those commandments of the law that do not have permanence in the way of obligation, still have permanence in the way of instruction. You just can't take the ceremonies or the sacrifices and say, well, we don't do that any longer, so don't read Leviticus. We don't do that any longer. Pay no mind to the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Well, that sacrificial system is there in the Bible for a reason. It had its points of instruction for the old covenant people of God, as points of instruction for us as well. So even those things that we'd say, well, they ceased. We don't longer do those things. Yet we need to understand those things. We need to understand the reason for those things, the purpose of those things. And how many of those things, as Paul, as Paul says in the Colossian letter, were a shadow of things to come. The substance of which is, is Christ. Particularly the sacrifices. But the sacrifices not only set forth the reality of a crucified Messiah, of one who sacrificed himself for our sake, but also points up the reality of divine holiness, the way in which the whole question of how the believers in the Old Covenant would approach God in worship, uh, all that enters in. It all has instructional value. It's not, it's not that Jesus has come to bring um, I'm trying to think of, of an object that you would use for destruction. He's not taking landmines and blowing it all to smithereens. He, he's not saying, this is Old Testament and it's not pertinent to us today. No. He's not come to abolish, but he's come to fulfill. He's come to bring the scriptures to their proper fulfillment. To bring the scriptures to their proper understanding. That these are they that testify of me. To bring the scriptures to a fullness of appreciation of how they are to be seen in the light of the ultimate purpose of God in the sending of his son. To be the true Israelite, to be the redeemer of his people, to be the king over all things, to the, the head of all things of the church, to be the king in Israel. All of the Bible is pertinent. It's Important. It can't be relegated to a place of obsolescence or it's obsolete. Of course, Jesus is speaking about the Old Testament. He goes so far as to say that not even a smallest letter of the Hebrew Bible, which is the letter Yod, 
Let me give you an idea of Yod. Oops. Oh, here it is. Okay, let me give you a... Well, this is the... This, this is not made right. Berith. Uh, uh, okay, that's a Hebrew word that means covenant. And you got the, the bet, you got the rosh, um, and you got the, the tov, and you have here the yod. And you see the yod, it's just this little, it's like a comma that's really up above the written line. All the other letters have... Um, you know, they're all like equal in size, except for the yod. The yod is this little, it's comparable to a Y sound. Um, and that's what Jesus is talking about. But then this uh, letter here, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is bet, sometimes, uh, uh, okay, you see the, 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 the bet. And then you have an, another letter, which is the, the kof. Which is just like that. And what's the difference between the cuss sound and the bus sound? It's this little thing here. It's the flange. This little thing that juts out from the letter that distinguishes it from that. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying not the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet nor the smallest part of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet will pass away till all are fulfilled. Jot and tittle inspiration, right down to the minutia. It's all of significance. It's all of importance. Nothing can be just set aside. Nothing can be abolished. And that greatness in the kingdom of of heaven, in the kingship of heaven, and the reign of God's Son over His people, is affirming everything. It's it's digging deep into everything it's bringing to light everything and it's a doing of everything you can't ease up on anything and say this doesn't matter to me this is not part of the whole counsel of God again Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable again that's not saying that everything is equally profitable but everything is profitable everything has profit in one way or another. And so if you relax it and say, well, that's from a different dispensation, that's from a different period of time, that has no pertinence to us as the people of God, and you teach others the same, um, Jesus doesn't say you cast out of the kingdom necessarily, but you're at least in the kingdom. It's the people with the fullest sense of the importance of all that God has said, of all that God has spoken, that will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Those are the people you should honor. Those are the ministries you should sit under. Those are the people you should gravitate towards. Those are the people that you'd say, you know, tell me what you know. I want to know more. I want to know the things that, that, that you know. And if you can teach me more, well, I, want to, I want to be around you. Because you're truly a noble person within, in the kingdom of God. And then he says something even more interesting, is that in the pursuit of the keeping of the commandments of God, 
you have to recognize there's lots of people out there that call themselves very dedicated Bible teachers and Bible preachers and Bible expounders um, who really, when you come right down to it, at the end of the day, have a lot of deficiencies they don't see, they don't understand, they don't even know about. And such a group of people are these ones that will persecute Jesus and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the people that have a great love for the Bible, for the sake of the Bible. Just for the sake of the fact that this is the written word of God and we're going to explore all the details of this written word of God, hardly ever paying attention to what it's saying to me. You know, it's, it's just important to affirm inerrancy. It's important to say we believe the Bible. And those people don't. We're better than them because we believe the Bible. But you know, sometimes it's the people that they're criticizing that actually do the Bible far better. <laughs> they're actually obeying the Bible far more consistently than the people that are making all the fury about their view of biblical teaching. Now, we have to have a right view of Scripture. But we have to go beyond that. You have to go beyond the right view of Scripture and have a right obedience to Scripture. And so Jesus is going to end the sermon saying, He that hears these words of mine and does them, and does them, like unto a man that built his house on a rock. It's not just hearing them. It's not just affirming them with all of our soul. We believe all of this is God's word. And then you go out and you're mean and heartless and cruel and you know you, you victimize other people. You I mean I mean the I mean you know what I'm saying. Is that it's it's conformity to the scriptures, it's conformity to God's word, to God's will, to God's character that we are to be seeking. It's the doing and not just the, not just the affirming the, the, the technical reality, because that's what the scribes and the Pharisees did. They were tithing mint and anise and cumin and overlooking the weightier matters of the law, mercy, love, and righteousness. So Jesus had to tell them on numerous occasions, go learn what this means. You know, you're criticizing me for healing this man who had a withered hand. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. Now it's not that sacrifices didn't have their place. They did. But yet there are the weightier matters of the law. And those things are to be uh, again understood that this religion of, of the scriptures is a heart religion. And that's why it's good that Jesus begins with the Beatitudes because that certainly centers upon the realities of the heart. We need to be going beyond just mere external religion. We need to be going on the going into the depths of the religion of the heart as we see ourselves in relationship to God before God, as pursuing God, conforming to the word and will of God. And then there's the moving on to the some of the details of the Old Testament law. Again, I think Jesus is the king on the the mount, speaking forth as God did in, Genesis, in, in Exodus 20. But it's interesting, God's words begin with commands. Jesus' words begin with blessings. And again, I think there's a difference between the people that he is proclaiming these things to, his disciples. His disciples came to him. He's teaching his disciples and he's teaching us, and when Jesus teaches his disciples, he begins not with commands. He begins with blessed. He begins with blessed. And we'll say more about that in the morning worship. 
But I think what I'd like to do just in the next week is just give, a, a, again, a completion of what we have here in the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with character, then it begins with the impact of Christian character in the world and the culture at large, and then it moves to seeing the basis of our developing character and a firm commitment to and obedience to the Word of God, and then it begins with the way in which Jesus interprets a divine law to us and then religious practices in chapter 6 and then matters of confidence and trust in the living God at the end of chapter 6. So we'll just to highlight these things in terms of the way in which this becomes something of a, of a real charter of the kingship of Jesus, the real law of his kingship, the way in which his kingship is exercised over us and the things that are at the heart of his reign and his rule over the people of God. And a surprising thing that's here that we'll say perhaps more about next week it's just the fullness of teaching that comes to us in this passage. How many of you first read the Sermon on the Mount as a mature person rather than in church? First read the Sermon on the Mount when you, you didn't hear about it in church, you weren't taught it about it in church. I guess most people here were taught about it in church. But I'm someone who didn't grow up in church. I didn't really know about the Sermon on the Mount at all. And then the Lord did this strange thing. He saved me as a, as a 17-year-old. And uh, a Baptist preacher, they gave me a Bible. And I began to read the Bible. And I knew nothing about the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't know it was called the Sermon on the Mount. I just began to read it. And I remember coming to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and just being astounded. <laughs> astounded. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. Jesus said Jesus. Whoa. It was just incredibly impressive and just the first time reading it the hearers were amazed at the end of this thing we should never cease to be amazed at the wonders and the brilliance of the things that comprise the charter of God's kingship his rule and his reign over us these principles of truth that emanate from this wonderful sermon. We can never read it enough. We can never study it enough. I don't know how many times in my ministry I've gone through it, but every time I've gone through it, I've just benefited more and more and more, and I hope we will as we um, do this, not just this week, but perhaps next week as well. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time we can spend just giving something of a overview of the context in which these beatitudes come to us in and Lord we pray this would be helpful to each of us as this sermon is something essential to Christian understanding to Christian teaching to Christian living we pray Lord that you would give us grace to take these truths to heart we would embody your character we would have the influence you designed for your people in the world we would be a people that are, that are cleaving to the book, cleaving to your words, pursuing a righteousness that's not just external but internal, a religion of the heart. So hear our prayers. Teach us these things. Give us understanding in them. And we pray your blessing would be known by each of us. We ask you to bless our time as we greet one another this morning, have a time of fellowship, and as we enter into the morning hour of worship. 
as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.